This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I, or listeners, will select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 90th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at the Enemy Ace special, cover dated 1990. But first, a little feedback. We revisited the lovely land of Latveria last episode, and Ryan Daly posted a reply on Facebook that was made up of a picture of that goofy, stretchy dude saying that it was, quote, another fantastic, although misguided episode, Professor. Well, if there's someone who I know is misguided, it's Reed Stretchy Butt, or whatever his name is. Clinton Robison, on the other hand, responded to the episode appropriately. Hail Doom, Professor, and a hearty Hail Doom to you as well, Clinton. Now, when I posted the preview image for that episode, Gore Tolton also replied appropriately with a performance of the Ode to Joy. Now, that is the way to give appropriate Dr. Doom-related feedback. Sheesh, Ryan Daly. Iowa's Joe Crawford gave some decent feedback in his retweet of that episode. I got 2099 problems, but a Doom ain't one. Many people tweeted me their cheap bin purchases, which I always appreciated. But special recognition goes out to Iowa's Joe for finding an Uncle Scrooge comic in his recent biannual trip to Half Price Books. Something appropriate about Scrooge in the cheap bins. A shout-out also goes to Grant Richter of the Unearthly Visions blog, who linked to my previous Scarlet Witch and Vision episodes on a post on his blog that briefly covered issue two of the series. Listener Robert Ludwig asked a question related to the entire podcast. Do you leave your classroom with the same sounder that you have at the end of the episodes? Love the Professor Allen, yeah. Oh, do you mean... Professor Allen! Well, technically speaking, in class, I try to go by Professor Middleton, although I have referred to myself more than once as Professor Allen, which I probably shouldn't do. And of course, I let Robert know that that closing sound effect came from the best jingle man of the business, Jeff Smith, that's Jeff with a G, at G-E-O-F-F-S-M-I-T-H on Twitter. Check him out for all your jingle and ditty and musical needs. Thanks to everyone who forwarded, shared, retweeted, or otherwise spread the word about last episode. Doom knows, and he appreciates. Alright, time to move on to our issue for this episode. And this is the final episode to feature books selected by the great Tom Harris of the Almost As Great Radio Free Asgard podcast. This is the Enemy Ace Special, 
and it had a cover price of $1, meaning I acquired this book at a very nice 75% markdown. The cover, by Joe Kubert, shows a dogfight in the foreground, a red triplane chasing and firing on a biplane. And in the background, hands on hips, is the ghostly figure of Hans von Hammer, the enemy ace. The issue has two stories, both reprints from Our Army at War. These are in fact the first two appearances of the character of Hans von Hammer, a.k.a. the Enemy Ace. The first story, simply called Enemy Ace, appeared in Our Army at War 151, cover dated February 1965, many, many months before I was born. Just saying. The story was written by Robert Kaniger with art by Joe Kubert. Here, for the first time, is the savage battle to the death for the skies of 1918 and World War I. It will be revealed entirely by the enemy in searing words from the blazing battle diary of a human killing machine, Rittmeister Hans von Hammer. Like a fragile sparrow, the blue and white winged Newport fluttered frantically under the lashing of my twin spandals. The Frenchman was a gallant opponent. He is saluting me through the smoke that is his shroud. Once he allowed me to get into position above and beyond him, he was kaput. Just as certainly as if he had put his neck under the executioner's axe, for I have been trained to kill. This was, in fact, the 50th air victory for Von Hammer, He is celebrated by his comrades, and orderly speaks to him. No pilot of other side is even near your record. All Germany rejoices. Your pilots are waiting to celebrate your latest triumph. But von Hammer is not interested in celebration. He falls asleep, much to the orderly's surprise. The man thinks that only a born killer could sleep as peacefully as that, as a lion cub after the flaming combat he has just been through. His next mission brings him into position against a clumsy duck of a plane, the pilot of whom fires wildly when he sees Von Hammer's all-red Fokker. Suddenly, a sledgehammer blow on my head came from one of those hundreds of wild bullets that the Englishman's Lewis was blazing all over the sky. A crimson film streaks across the sky, but Von Hammer's sticky palm tells him that it's just blood running down his goggles. And even though he was flying blind to some extent, Von Hammer pulls the stick back again. Through my blood-smeared goggles, the yellow plane waddled above me. But he was in the Englishman's blind spot, and he held fire until the gap narrowed between the planes, until he was sure. My twin spandals hurled bolts of blazing lightning at the unwary enemy plane until smoke suddenly gushed from it. The pilot was dead, but the observer was still firing. He is a brave man, Von Hammer concedes, saluting in respect as the plane plummets to the ground. As the fury of combat released, whirling blackness overcame Von Hammer, and he slumped against his stick. As my Fokker plunged earthwards after my 51st victory, my hand still clutched the stick. The triplane and I had been in so many desperate battles in the sky that it seemed to know what I needed. He cannot remember the landing, awakening in a hospital. He is told that he will be out of action for a week. 
but instead of considering himself lucky, he considers himself stupid for getting hit by a stray bullet. The nurses watch him sleep like an angel, an angel of death, one comments. He broods on the fact that even in the arms of a beautiful nurse and among his fellow pilots, he still feels lonely, as if they stand apart from him, the killing machine. After recovering from his wound, the loner pilot goes hunting in the black forest. He finds some solace in taking a rifle and running across another predator, a wolf who he recognizes as a kindred spirit. Let us both return to the lonely business of killing. That night under the full moon, Hans takes to the skies once more. At 10,000 feet, he spots a long gray flying machine, one of our Zeppelins on its way to bomb Paris, a juicy target for Allied pilots. He conceals himself above the Zeppelin, staying hidden from the three enemy fighters that take on the big machine. He manages to shoot two down quickly, but the third is a more skilled airman. When the Frenchman's guns jammed, Von Hammer was certain he would win. Instead, the enemy hurtled on like a falling star until night exploded into white-hot noon, and the air around my tumbling Fokker became a furnace. He deliberately dived into the Zeppelin. Von Hammer salutes the flaming debris of what had once been a mighty airship and its stinging gadfly. He was a first-class fighting man. He more than even the score, downing the Zepp that I was guarding. On the way back to his airfield, the enemy ace points out the sad facts of war. It's kill or be killed in these battle skies. Tomorrow is another day. The end. Let's move right into the second story and discuss uh, both of them together in a few minutes. The second story, Flaming Bait, first appeared two issues later in our Army at War 153, cover dated April 1965, still many months before I was born, just saying. Again, the story was written by Robert Kaniger with art, again, by Joe Kubert. Our story starts in mid-air, in mid-battle. It was another day of kill or be killed in the blazing skies of 1917. Von Hammer takes down an English Sopwith scout who had just destroyed a German Rumpler. He has to draw the English pilot down to his altitude, play a dangerous game of possum to take him by surprise. The moment stretched into a blazing eternity for the Sopwith scout as it tried to elude me, but my hammering Spandau guns impaled it like a scorched leaf against a wall. His fuel dangerously low, Von Hammer returns to Jagstaffel Field, and we get some similar moments to the prior issue, actually. Him sleeping off the adventure, his friends complimenting him with endearing terms like Hammer of Hell and Human Killing Machine. He even wanders back to the Black Forest and chats with his friend, the Black Wolf. He always left me at the edge of the forest as we both returned to the lonely business of killing. Before leaving on his next mission, Von Hammer is approached by a newspaper photographer whose readers would love to see a picture of the flying ace. But the Hammer of Hell is superstitious and refuses to allow his picture to be taken. His mechanics confirm the story, 
more than one pilot has had his last picture taken just before flying into the skies to meet his doom. But another pilot, Eric Schloss, does not share Von Hammer's fears and allows the photo. On the mission, when the enemy is sighted, Schloss requests permission to attack. Hans frets over his superstitious belief, but gives the ambitious young pilot the go-ahead. Unfortunately, Eric is shot down, lending credence to the old pilot's superstition. I should have forbidden him to have his picture taken before going into action. I should have forbidden it. Eric's brother, Werner, also a pilot, has sharp words for Von Hammer, blaming him for letting Eric take lead in the attack. But his answer is simple. The sky holds no favorites. Today it was Eric. Tomorrow it could be you or me. On the next flight, Eric's brother Werner has his picture taken and is excited with the prospect of avenging his brother's fiery death. During the mission, Von Hammer tries to protect Werner, but the anti-aircraft fire downs the young man's plane. Werner's ship erased from the sky. It was his last picture, too. Hammer blames himself for the death of the brothers. As the commanding officer, he is responsible for the life of every pilot on the base. Like an evil nemesis, the photographer haunts at dawn the next day. Preparing for another run, Hans debates with himself whether to allow his picture to be taken. Otherwise, all German pilots will become superstitious as he is. How can I refuse when Eric and Werner dared? But before he can say anything to the photographer, Allied pilots strafe the field. Suddenly, falling upon us through the shadowy dawn light like blazing arrows. Hans manages to make it to his plane and takes to the skies. I aimed a bomb straight for the belching cannon muscles that looked like miniature camera lenses to me. He flies straight into the dazzling light of the sun. He manages to destroy the attackers and decides now, finally, it is the time to take the photograph. But after landing, he finds that it is the photographer himself who has been the latest victim of the war. The End. The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nam. Join me, Tom Paneris, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series The Nam. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. And we're back. Something I think has been lost to time is the high quantity of high quality war comics 
that DC has published over its lifetime? Of course, superheroes have always been their bread and butter, with talking super monkeys a close second, yes. But war stories were critical components to their portfolio of titles from the 50s into the 70s. Sergeant Rock, the Unknown Soldier, Haunted Tank, the Blackhawks. These characters and many others were standouts for the company for a long time. They tried to bring back some of the war titles in the New 52, and they were all canceled pretty darn quick. From what I understand, if you want good war comics nowadays, look for Garth Ennis' work. He's about the only guy doing this type of work that I know of that gets consistently good reviews, at least. This issue, this special, I think, served two purposes. It did celebrate the 25th anniversary of the character's debut in 1965, but it also promoted another celebration of the 25th anniversary. Shortly after this issue hit, DC released the 128-page hardcover OGN, Enemy Ace, War Idol. That's Idol, I-D-Y-L-L. Merriam-Webster defines Idol as a simple, descriptive work in poetry or prose that deals with rustic life or pastoral scenes or suggests a mood of peace and contentment. It's the root of the word idyllic, meaning, again, a setting that's pleasing or picturesque. So the title, War Idol, is a bit of a contradiction, which in a way describes the character of Enemy Ace, a contradiction. In terms of this special being partly one long ad for that then-brand-new OGN, the back cover of this book is a house ad for War Idol, and the cover has a rectangle on it, noting that this reprint issue contains an introduction by George Pratt, who wrote and drew that War Idol book. That introduction covers the inside of both the front and back covers, and is actually quite interesting. It covers some basics of the character and the character's history, as well as some of Pratt's biography and thoughts. So I'm going to read a decent chunk of that essay. So for the next few minutes, most of these are going to be George Pratt's words. Enemy Ace first appeared in our Army at War number 151 in 1965, returning for two 14-page stories in issues 153, and 157. He also appeared in two full-length 24-page stories in Showcase 57 and 58. From there, tales featuring the character known as the Hammer of Hell became a regular feature in Star-Spangled War Stories beginning at 138. The first 11 issues of that run contained 22- to 23-page stories, followed by nine issues with shorter stories. As the first American comic book series, To look at war from the enemy's point of view, Enemy Ace has been acknowledged worldwide as an outstanding accomplishment. Created by Bob Kaniger and Joe Kubert, Enemy Ace stories are seen through the eyes of Rittmeister Hans von Hammer, the deadliest German pilot of World War I, who guided his Fokker DR-1 to more than 70 kills during the course of his career. Uh, George, that's kind of a spoiler because he's only gotten 50 and 51 through these two issues, but I'll let that go. Back to Pratt. Although he may lead his squadron into battle, he remains aloof, 
refusing to associate with the bloodthirsty soldiers. The sky is the killer of us all, he frequently says, maintaining that he does his job purely out of loyalty to his once proud country. He lives by a harsh code of ethics, one he attempts to teach his men to follow, as he shows them how to live and die with dignity. He refuses to take unfair advantage of an opponent in combat, and honors his victims with a salute. Growing up in the 60s in Texas, my friends and I were fascinated by the idea of war, at least when we weren't too busy playing Batman. Continuously gathering around the two existing copies of Jablonski's Air War from our school library, my friends and I dreamed of being fighter pilots and cursed ourselves for being born too late to fly the P-51 Mustang. And since there was no effective way to play fighter pilot, we settled for playing infantrymen and wiped each other out over and over again. I didn't become an enemy ace fan until he was in his own title and midway through his run at that. A friend lent me his tattered copy, and I was immediately hooked. Kaniger and Cupert had done an amazing thing. They made me feel compassion for an enemy by letting me see through his eyes. I was mesmerized by Joe Cubert's wonderful artwork and couldn't get enough. Strangely, as fascinated as I was by war as a kid, I was also terrified by it. As the war in Vietnam raged, I remember Walter Cronkite's nightly television body counts and footage of horrifying, bloody firefights. Eventually, as I grew up and the war came to a close, I left those fears behind. I went to art school, and soon afterwards began working for a NAM magazine, illustrating stories by NAM vets. I read a massive amount of material about the war in Vietnam in the attempt to understand just what happened over there. But after that magazine folded, I realized that I still hadn't said anything about how I felt about war. Not just Vietnam, but in general. Thus I came full circle, back to enemy ace. At this point in the essay, Pratt goes on to describe his War Idol book, which takes place in the 1970s, and involves a 90-year-old Von Hammer sharing war stories with a Vietnam vet. Sounds like another interesting take on a character that's built on the concept of himself being an interesting take. But that essay, I think, really captures the excitement of Enemy Ace, the power of the kaniger Cubert team, which I think is the secret to these stories. Now, 50 years later, I don't really have a sense for what Robert Kaniger's reputation is among comic book aficionados. I have heard a podcasting colleague or two confuse him with Bob Haney, and that doesn't help. But I think the bigger problem with Kaniger is that he had a long run on Wonder Woman, mostly in the 1960s, and just didn't like that character much. And the stories don't have a lot of life in them at all. And that just, I think, tarnishes him in the eyes of some readers, and, and I think that's reasonable. I, I, I do think that's fair. But Kaniger wrote multiples, hundreds of war stories for DC, from Star Spangled to Sergeant Rock, Weird War, and of course, Our Army at War. And that's when he was at his best. And as long and storied and varied a career that Joe Kubert had. Again, maybe it's the war comics that best stand the test of time and, and really represent and display the strengths of his work. Sergeant Rock may be the character most identified with Kubert. So for him, his career is largely made 
on works like G.I. Combat, and of course, Our Army at War, which later became Sergeant Rock. And in Enemy Ace, these guys created such a different take on the war genre, maybe truly unique in the technical sense. To tell the story of World War I from the enemy perspective only 45 or 50 years later, it's, that's a bold choice. That's the equivalent today, time-wise, of telling a Vietnam story from the VC's perspective. It's, it's a take that's pretty rare. It's like Steven Spielberg's movie Munich, which told the 1972 Olympics terrorism story, only 30 or 35 years after the fact. And that movie's not totally from the PLO's perspective, but their perspective is definitely part of the mix. Now, I generally don't love the trend towards brooding, dark, misunderstood characters. On a superhero, that's a personality that really doesn't do much for me. But for a fighter jock, that is a great character trait. Getting inside the head of the most successful pilot of the war is a great idea. It's the idea that the warrior may have more in common with other warriors, even those on the other side than they might with civilians on their own side. That's a great insight. The respect shown the opponent, the honor the opponent deserves. That's just such a great take on the war book or the war character. I'll admit the second story, the pilot superstition stuff with the photographer, that didn't grab me right away, because it wasn't really what I was expecting, but it did give an interesting insight into the psyche of the type of person who would end up the most successful fighter pilot on their side in the war. So reading it a second time, I got a whole lot more out of it. And again, I think Enemy Ace was about delivering what wasn't expected. And of course, the Twilight Zone ending of that story pulls it all together. I do wonder, and this applies to all genre stories, how different these stories are as they progress. Back when these were written, There's no guarantee that a reader of issue 153 had read 151. So you get a little recapitulation of many of the beats. Sleeping right after the mission, being called human killing machine by his friends. Understanding the black wolf in the forest. Being disconnected from some of the members of his own team. My fear, concern, would be that if I picked up the enemy a showcase, say that the stories could get a bit repetitive. But that's a concern, I guess, with any comic book character, reading what was intended to be a year of stories, or years of stories, over a few days or over a week. Any character's adventures might seem repetitive. But having read these two stories in this Enemy A special, I'm pretty confident that these two creators, Kanegar and Kubert, probably continued to serve up top, quality stories for Enemy Ace. And by the way, the character in the story is never called Enemy Ace. The closest to that is the title of the first story. That's Enemy Ace. And the character has nicknames, is the Hammer of Hell or whatever, but he is never referred to in story as Enemy Ace. And now you know. The Verdict On the Enemy Ace special, these are great stories. By some of DC's top talent in the war genre, Kaniger and Kubert, there's an energy to the stories and a depth of characterization, obvious knowledge of the ins and outs of battle. 
It's a great concept telling the story from the other side's perspective. And they walk that tightrope really well. It's terrific stuff. Obviously, you're more likely to find this special in the cheap bins than you are to find any of those stories from Our Army at War or Star Spangled War stories. So this is definitely, totally, a quarter bin steal. That wraps up my coverage of the 1990 Enemy Ace Special, bringing episode 90 of the Quarter Bin Podcast to a close. In episode 91, we'll be covering the first two issues of the DC miniseries The Weird, cover dated April and May 1988. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, Enemy Ace, DC's War Books, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.